Let's pray. So, Father, sustain this voice this morning through these services. The voice belongs to you. The people in all these services belong to you. You love them. You sent Jesus to die for each and every one here. We pray that we sense the profound love at the cross of Jesus Christ. You do not owe us anything. We owe you everything. Nonetheless, the one who owed nothing gave all. And the ones who owed all received all. One of the tremendous aspects of salvation. Grip our hearts this morning. Allow us to be able to get a sense of the overwhelming presence of who you are and of what you've done. So Father, in these minutes you give us to be together. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here, Father, again to see Jesus and, and Him only. We're praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> it was a statement that was made by Charles Evans Hughes that caught my attention, that set in motion this entire series, But God, that we are that we're developing in October, November. Charles Hughes was Secretary of State, and he was overseas, and as he, he was attending a conference, and he instructed his interpreter to give him a summary translation of what was being spoken of in Spanish. It's what he said next that seized my attention. Quote, While a running translation is is ample for my purpose. I want you to give me every word after the speaker uses the word but. For what follows but is of utmost importance. That's true of Scripture. Something has gone strategically wrong in this world. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Paul would write in Romans. Now, David is going through what I will call troubling times. It's very possible this morning that in all these services, we're talking to people who, to varying degrees, are experiencing troubling times. I always assume when I stand up to speak, I'm talking to wounded soldiers. People who walk with a spiritual limp. And need somehow, some way to be encountered with the Holy Word of God. David is limping. He has limped out of Jerusalem. The background to this psalm is 2 Samuel 15 through 18. Uh, Absalom has revolted 
against David. He sought to dethrone David and be the substitute for David, which is interesting because David's line is to be the substitutionary line for our sins. In the ultimate David, Jesus Christ. Beware of the substitutes for the substitute. And so now here we have something more dramatic than Absalom versus David. We have the unfolding of the 1 John 2.18 principle, many antichrists have come. Because just as there was a line of Davidic sons who passed on the promise until Messiah came, so there's an anti-messianic line who are attempting to substitute themselves for the messianic until the ultimate antichrist finally arrives on the scene. And so in many ways what you will find is what we see in history is the, is the matter of the substitute being at the forefront of the crisis of this universe. So now here, in miniature form, you've got Absalom substituting himself for David. Who's meant to be on that throne? Now, it's playoff season, baseball-wise, and Christians love baseball, of course. So what we have here, I want to circle four bases for you this morning, found in these eight verses, four bases, that I think will help you and me to round the bases, to handle troubling times when they come our way. And the first base comes out of verse 1 and verse 2. That in troubling times, first of all, consider with me the opposition God's people face. Notice now the superscription said it's a psalm of David when, when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's going to break his heart. And I know there are many broken families we minister to. Weighed, weighing heavily upon David what's taking place in his son's soul. So I want you to notice how this begins in verse 1. This is, this is important, see it? O Lord, how many are my foes. Notice he did not begin, how many are my foes. O Lord, did he? I want you to see that in Scripture, first things are first. And in your life and my life, first things are meant to be first. And furthermore, in our lives, first person is to be first. And so he begins not with his foes, he begins with his Lord. Now, that has tremendous application for whatever you're facing in your own personal life. He feels this overwhelming sense of oppression, overwhelming sense of opposition as the Davidic one, part of the line leading to Messiah. God has promised an eternal kingdom, but here's this one. And of all people, it's David's son who's attempting to dethrone David. You would think that it would be somebody else out there, but not his own son. You see how personal this is? Some of the most intense, most painful experiences of life uh, family-related, personal dynamics. Maybe you're facing that today. Well, here he is, and he doesn't start with Absalom, and he doesn't start with foes. He starts with the old Lord. When he uses the old, 
that is almost a sense of the exhale of emotion. It's one of those, oh, Lord. Notice that L-O-R-D is capitalized. It comes from the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenantal name for God. The relational name for God. In other words, what David is saying here is, I'm going to start relationally because these people are attempting to disconnect me from God and from God's promise. So I need to put first things first, first person first. Even in this highly intensified emotional state. Oh Lord. Then he gets to what comes next. Notice the word many. It appears not once, not twice, but three times. How many are my foes? There's an exclamation point in our English at this point. How, how many are rising against me? How many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God? Selah. Not once, not twice, three times, the many comes across. So it gives you this sense of him feeling a sense of overwhelmed. And he uses foes here at this point. And it's almost as if he just can't believe that the people who had once had demonstrated such allegiance, loyalty, relational connectedness to him, are turning against him. And he's wondering where the breakdown of loyalty is coming from. Why is this happening? Revolutionary War. You've heard of the horrible winter the Continental Army suffered at Valley Forge. Well, the clothes were so threadbare, says one writer, and blankets so rare that the troops often sat up all night rather than fall asleep and freeze to death. Lafayette saw their soldiers, his legs had frozen black. They were taken to hospitals for amputation. So why the suffering? The writer tells us it was not the severe winter, because the winter was mild by Pennsylvania standards. But here's the thrust. The soldiers went hungry because nearby farmers preferred to sell to the British in Philadelphia for hard cash. The army was half naked because marchers, merchants in Boston refused to move government clothing off their shelves at anything less than profits ranging from 1,000 to 1,800%. You see, what was happening here was that the people that you thought would be loyal have become disloyal, and the hardship of others was their opportunity here for success. So now we've got an opportunist on our hands in Absalom. And people are choosing sides and they realize David has fled Jerusalem. Absalom is there. Maybe God is no longer with David because we've heard the story of David and Bathsheba. So David must be lacking God's presence. And if David is lacking God's presence, I'd rather be on the side of Absalom because Absalom appears to be uh, one who has God's presence because he's on the holy hill. He's in Jerusalem and David is fleeing. Now, at first glance, that makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? Superficial glance, that's what you and I might think. 
But what I want you to spot here is that it's David who says, O Lord. And notice how verses 1 and 2 connect together. And notice who uses the generic God. O Lord, many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. In other words, the people that have now established allegiance to Absalom are using a generic view of God. Well, on the other hand, here is David who, yes, sinned with Bathsheba and is fleeing from Jerusalem, but has, because of repentance and faith in, in the Messiah to come, reestablished relationship with God and refers to him as his L-O-R-D. So now, Where's the loyalty to be found here? And how do you understand this in the battles of life? Because life's not a playground. Life's a battleground. And these can be troubling times. Now, what fascinates me when I study the 150 Psalms is that they are sequential. They build off of one another. The introduction to the 150 Psalms is found in First and Second Psalm. They're the twin doors that pave the way. And that second Psalm, why do the nations rage? Why the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And David is Yahweh's anointed. The Hebrew word here for anointed is Messiah. He's the small Messiah paving the way for the ultimate Messiah, the one known as son of David when he was entering into Jerusalem to ultimately die in our place for our sins. So now, here's opposition. And notice that he's very, very personal about it here in the third psalm. My foes. Many are rising against me. They're not receding and arising. Many are saying of my soul. They're talking about David. But I mean, really, what right do they have and what understanding do they have of his soul? They can't look into the interior of his architectural well-being, make assumptions and draw conclusions. They're talking Yeah, religious people talk, unfortunately. They're talking about him. It's part of the pain of life. But you've got to have the height of a rhinoceros when you're a believer. They're saying there's no salvation for him in God. But he's the one who's talking to God. He's the one who has cried out, O Lord, with feeling. He's the one with a capital L-O-R-D here. Is that the case for you? So if you're facing some troubling times this morning, here's your first space to consider. Why don't you consider the opposition God's people face because God's people face opposition And even if at times it seems the people that you thought would be most loyal are are not there for you, God is. And even when people think you've got your, your interior all figured out, they don't. God does. 
Keep it capital L-O-R-D. And watch how God works. You need a but God moment. And that's coming your way now. Because verses 3 and 4 deliver the goods. You're up to second base. Because in troubling times, consider second of all, the protection God's people value. Verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. We'll, we'll camp on that for a second. Think this through together for a moment. He stays very personal and very directional. This is a prayer in troubling times. And if you are in troubling times, this is a prayer for you to use. David is pouring out his soul before his sovereign God, keeping it personal. But he's got that O in there, that O factor. It's emotion being expressed from the inside out. Oh Lord, you, oh Lord, not my military, oh Lord, not my high-ranking officers, oh Lord, you, oh Lord, are a shield about me. Would you mark that? Notice that it does not say, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield in front of me. Does it? Significant. Because you and I have vulnerabilities. David, as courageous warrior as he is, understands the significance of the shield and the importance that a soldier understand and assess and have self-awareness of where he is vulnerable. Leaders proactively in advance determine vulnerabilities. Senior pastors do have to do this with regard to congregations. Nehemiah had to do that with the walls of Jerusalem. Where are we vulnerable? Moses had to do that out in the wilderness when the people were murmuring. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 15 verse 1, and David would have known this. God had said to Abram, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, shields would have been very significant to David. And in his battle life experiences, his mind would have gone forward to that point when his powerful encounter with Goliath, Philistine versus Israelite, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 41, the Philistine moved forward, came near to David, while his shield-bearer stood in front of him. Fascinating. But it did not read, stood around him. Couldn't cover all the bases. And so David in his savvy slingshot was able to do what the shield bearer was unable to prevent. Now what God has done at this point is force you and me to ask, and how do we go about shielding ourselves in the battles of life? 
David has come to grips with the fact that in order to be able to strategically maneuver through the battles of life, Yahweh must be your shield. He understood adequate protection no matter what you're facing and the challenges that come your way. But you, O Lord, not you, O my military leaders, are a shield about me. Notice he doesn't end there. Another descriptive. My glory. In the Hebrew, glory means heavy. So if God is heavy, that means you do not take God lightly. Too often then, in the battles of life, the natural tendency is to be so overwhelmed by what's going against us that we inadvertently begin to take God lightly as we take the issues of life and give them greater and greater and greater weight. But the question I'm now asking you, not only is who is your shield, but where do you place the weight of life? Where is the glory given? God is far weightier than anyone and anything in this world. So you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, are shield about me, my glory, and then as proficient with words as he is, as, as poetically this descriptive, and the lifter of my head. Parents, you ever have to do this when one of your, when one of your children are, are down, discouraged, weighed by whatever it is that's affecting them? Usually it's, it's how the head is positioned that gives you a sense of how the soul or the heart is positioned. And if the head is hanging, that tells you something about the weightiness that's gripped their own sense of emotion. Notice what David is doing at this point. He is the lifter of my head. How many times have I seen between services a parent coming along and taking a finger or a hand underneath the chin of a child and lift that head upward to gaze into the eyes of the parent. Now too often in the battles of life, we have this head that tends to hang. And what we need is God's sovereign hand to lift this head so that we reestablish our gaze, our focus, our perspective, our understanding of who God is. You need to be able to distinguish God in the battles of life. In that magnificent book in Flags, The Flags of Our Fathers, James Bradley tells of this famous photograph of the Marines raising the American flag in 1945. You've seen the photo again and again and again appeared in newspapers, including a hometown Texas newspaper 
being read by Ed Block, home on leave from the Air Force. Here's what we are informed of. His mother, Belle, walked by, glanced at the photograph, pointed to the Marine, thrusting the pole down in the ground, and told Ed that that was his brother Harlan. Ed said, no, to his mom. There was no side view, just the back of a Marine. Besides, they didn't even know if Harlan was there where this flag was placed. No way could she know that that, that man, that soldier, was Harlan. It was Mom Bell. Bell was sure. She went back into the kitchen and simply said, I know my soldier. That's my boy. Well, that, that military figure was identified as Henry Hansen by the military. But Bell Block was unmoved. Sadly, the family soon received word that Harlan had been killed in action in a prior event of that photo being taken. But in 1947, after additional testimony, they received notification of a correction. Henry Hansen had not been in the picture. That young soldier aiming the pole into the ground was, in fact, Harlan Block. Bell only saw the backside, but was hardly surprised. I know my soldier. I know my son. You see here, David knows his God. And in the battles of life, you've got to know your God. And so you, but you, O Lord, you need that but. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. The first three descriptives in verse 3. My glory, the lifter of my head. Notice then that it's after that threefold descriptive that you get to verse 4. And he doesn't merely pray. I cried out. I cried aloud. It doesn't say I merely cried. Does it? I cried aloud, but it's directional. In the battles of life, I want you to be highly directional. You need a T.O. You've got to do something. You've got to go somewhere. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he keeps it, capital L-O-R-D, here. And get this. And this is powerful for the Jewish reader. He answered me from his holy hill. Now, why is that so significant? Because Absalom is now in Jerusalem on that holy hill. He's claiming to be king. By all appearances, it seems as though David has been dethroned and removed as king. David is out here in the wilderness being hunted once again. Early life, Saul, later life, Absalom. Always on the run. But nonetheless, he's able to say that I cried aloud to the Lord. 
he answered me from his holy hill. People assumed at that time that, that there's a connection here between God and the holy hill, and it's obvious that Absalom's got connections. And I'll hang with the guy who's got connections. I can go places. David is a disconnect in my life experience. But I want you to see here is that what David is saying, I've got connections. Again and again and again, it's capital L-O-R-D. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he didn't answer Absalom. He answered David from the holy hill of all places where Absalom's positioned himself. And David wants you to take a Selah there on that one. Even though David is far removed geographically, and Absalom is so uniquely positioned geographically, David is so close spiritually, and Absalom is so removed spiritually. Do you see the tremendous contrast that this but has produced here? In troubling times, consider then first the opposition God's people face, one and two. Second of all, the protection God's people value, three and four. But now thirdly, in troubling times, consider the courage God's people exhibit, five and six. After that, Selah, he's a musician, you know. He says, I lay down and slept. Courageous people can sleep. It's a fascinating thing when you begin to study the whole matter of sleep in David's experience. There was a time when Saul, when Saul in 1 Samuel was sleeping, and his shield bearer of all people was guarding him. But on, he was sleeping as well. So what happened? David crept in. It would have been easy for David to take Saul's life, but that was not God's will. David knows the vulnerabilities of sleep. He knows that he was concerned for God's will pertaining to Saul, but he's not convinced that Absalom would be concerned with God's will pertaining to David. Nonetheless, despite the fact that the people might say, you're vulnerable if you go to sleep, everybody stay alert, David is saying, in essence, I know that God's alert. I'm going to bed. Are you able to go to bed under those, those perspectives at night? I lay down and slept. And what captures my attention in the next phrase is he says, and I woke again. Again. You know, he, he could easily say, I wasn't sure if I was going to awake. I woke again. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me, all around me. In Westminster Abbey, years ago, we were standing there in London. There's this plaque to Lord Lawrence. Simply his name, date of his death, these words, quote, 
He feared man so little because he feared God so much. And here you have David. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So you draw a line now from the all around of verse 6 back to that phrase in verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Even though they're all around me, you're a shield about me. Oh, this is rich. Once you've reached that point, you're ready to round third and head home. And here's your, here's your fourth coming your way. That fourthly in troubling times, consider with me the faith that God's people need. The faith that God's people need. Arise, O Lord. Now, didn't he just say there in verse 5, I lay down and slept, I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me? So now you draw a line from that to the next, verse 7, and he's saying, now you can almost sense he's got momentum here. There is a buildup here of anticipation, of faith, of what God is about to do. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. <coughs> this, is, this is messianic thinking of, of how the book of Revelation dealing with the line of David, will unfold ultimately. You break the teeth of the wicked, which will make every orthodontist smile. They're part of God's plan here, you see. Found a few bumper stickers related to that. Life is short. Smile while you still have teeth. Rodney Dangerfield. I told my dentist my teeth are going yellow. He told me to wear a brown tie. Mark Twain. Adam and Eve had many advantages, but the principal one was that they escaped teething. But my favorite, lying through your teeth does not count as flossing. David is facing the liars. They have offered a counterfeit to the line that God has established that leads to Jesus Christ. So with the revelation, the book of Revelation, where in fact we stood on the Isle of Patmos and pondered, you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked, so he brings it home for you. He's rounding third, headed home. Salvation belongs not to my military, not to our strategies. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. In other words, he is not self-focused in his prayer. As the carrier, as the transmitter of the promise plan of God through the generations that leads to Messiah Jesus Christ. He wants you to do a Selah here and ponder the fact that it's a blessing beyond your people and what he's doing at that point is that he's anticipating a blessing of the outcome similar to what God had said to Abram in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And you pull all that together. And then you ponder the significance of a Charles Evans Hughes who would be able to say when a translator is processing 
how to communicate the Spanish language into English. While running translation is ample for my purpose, I want you to give me every word after the speaker says B-U-T. But. For what follows but is of the most significant, utmost importance. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Selah. Stand together. So, Father, thank you for sustaining the voice. What's most important is that you have sustained through the centuries your word. And it doesn't return void. Thank you for the but gods of the Bible. Thank you for showing us that, yeah, reality, things have gone wrong. Sin has taken its toll. But there's a but God that is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. There's a but God in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So help us, Father, no matter what we were experiencing in our lives, to pause and ask if I had the ultimate but God moment where I recognized I am a sinner. But God, but God sent Jesus to die for my sins. And I've trusted him for my salvation. Thank you for the but God. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.